This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Delighted to say that I'm joined on Football CFB today by Leroy Resenier, a man who has had an incredible career in football, played at Fulham, played at QPR, West Ham, Bristol City, Charlton Athletic, also been involved in the coaching side of football and the punditry side too. Leroy, thanks for joining me. Absolute pleasure, Callum. Good to meet you. Something that, before we, we talk about your career in, as a whole at the moment, you're doing a lot of work from home. I know you do a lot of work with Premier League productions. Just how mm-hmm. that been at the moment? Because I imagine it's something that's keeping you going as well. It, it certainly is. Like like everybody, when lockdown happened, I think all, all caught on the on the back foot. And that first two or three weeks, everybody was obviously really concerned about what was happening at hospitals. Really proud of our NHS and what they had to put up with. But we all wanted to. Uh, in some way get back to work and unfortunately for us we found the format where we could do our shows from home and all the you know, we're talking on zoom uh, there's cloudcast there's uh, a team microsoft teams there's all sorts of things going on so we we've managed to produce shows from home so i've been doing shows two or three times a week from home which is really good which is kind of um kept me going and kept me in contact with people more than anything else and kept me in contact with a, a lot of friends so that's been really really positive out of a very very negative situation and you know everybody's staying at home as they should do to save lives and uh, but hopefully we're trying to entertain people at Premier League with no football and hopefully we've managed to do that. Well, absolutely the the PLP shows we get and obviously they go around the globe but we get them obviously on uh, on uh, UK TV as well which is which is great and um, mm-hmm. obvious question for you is your son Liam professional footballer well, footballer mm-hmm. now involved in the coaching side how is he getting on at the moment? Have you kept in contact with him throughout this? Yeah, I spoke, I spoke to him a lot. Yeah, and uh, Liam was, uh, he, he, I think he had the virus and he's got uh, asthma. He has asthma. So I was really concerned about him for a couple of weeks where he self-isolated. But he, fortunately, he came through that. And we've been talking about, you know, football and how they come back. I think, fortunately, I think the championship, I think looking at maybe coming back and, and starting training um, on Monday this Monday and we just we talk about football all the time so I've been in touch with him about how he's kept in touch with the players and the problems you know especially with well-being and keeping players you know everybody thinks being a footballer is a is a fantastic job and an easy job which it is not an easy job it's a fantastic job but you know players have their anxieties as well and he's having to try and deal with those as well so um, yeah he's learning very fast you know he wants to coach he wants to manage and you know this is something that he's had to deal with and uh, he's dealing with it in, in trying to be positive as possible and trying to get the players back getting back fit and whenever they do come back and play that they're in the right frame of mind not only physically but mentally as well absolutely and i want to talk to you about your career from start to finish from playing and managing but i want to ask mm-hmm. you the question that when your mm-hmm. name's mentioned i'm sure you get it mentioned to you a lot Google, Google. <laughs> as soon as your name's mentioned, you know what it's like, Torquay United, yeah. you take the job, there was a takeover, so you were in and then you were out rather quickly. What was that situation like firsthand? Because we see the story on Google, as you've said, but we don't yeah. really get to know what actually happened. Well, I have to take you back to, to when I was first at, at Torquay, when I first took the job under, under Mike Bates, and I was there for four and a half years. And uh, we won promotion in my second season. And um, for a club like Talkie United, where there were two and a half thousand fans a week to win promotion into, you know, which is now, I suppose, League One was just a massive, you know, it hadn't been done for many, many years. And there was parades around, around Torquay and, you know, it was fantastic. So I eventually left uh, um, um, mutually, myself and the chairman got on brilliantly. Me and Mike Bates were, were more friends than chairman and, and manager. And I left and went on and did some other things. And then out of the blue, uh, it was in May, I think, and uh, I got a call from Mike saying, Leroy, I've got a, a little bit of a problem. He says, I'm trying to sell the club. I can't sell the club for what I want. 
So I need someone to come and take over the club and I need a, a safe pair of hands. And I know that, you know, you'll do it for me, you know, no matter whether it's uh, three months, six months, a year, two years. He said, I, I'm not sure. And because we're good mates, I said, look, Mike, absolutely no problem. I'll come down, I'll oversee it. I was doing other things as well and he's quite happy for me to do other things. I, I said, look, if it comes to the point where I've got to get players in quickly, I'll do that. But I'll oversee it for you, absolutely no problem at all. So this was on the Friday, on, I think on the, on the Thursday. On the Friday, I went down to Plainwater. I had the press conference, you know, at Sky. Oh, Leo Rosinho's back, you know, everybody's really pleased. I'm really pleased. Yes, I'm back. And it's great to be back. I've been appointed by, by the manager to try to take the club forward again. And then after that press conference, it was no more than 10 minutes after that press conference. So I was just walking out the ground and Mike rang me on my mobile. He said, that, Leroy, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, uh, I've sold the club. I said, what? Don't be ridiculous. Because he always used to play practical jokes on me all the time. I said, don't you winding me up. He said, no, honestly, as soon as they saw your face on Sky, they thought I was serious about keeping the club. And they've given me exactly what I want. He said, look, so just pop around for a cup of tea. We'll have a cup of tea and I'll talk you through it. So I popped around his house. Had a cup of tea. He said, look, just keep this under your hat. This was on the Friday. He said, keep it under your hat till Monday because we have to, like, dot the I's and cross the T's and get the contract done. So Monday, he gave me a call. He said, Leroy, it's all done. Thank you ever so much. He got exactly what he wanted from the club. The club had moved on. I said, Mike, absolutely no problem. Absolute pleasure. And I, I moved on. I was then sat at home on the Thursday evening and uh, my face appeared on Have I Got News For You in one of the boxes. And... Um, it was that Leroy Rosinho had only been uh, uh, in, in, in the job for 10 minutes. And then my phone started to ring off the hook. Are you all right? You got sacked after 10 minutes. I mean, well, it wasn't really like that. But, you know, whatever. You know, I wasn't really bothered. You know, it was something between myself and Mike. And from that, it went to the, the fastest uh, managerial uh, career in the history. And every time somebody gets sacked after six months or a month, my name's at the top of, that Google list is the shortest reign in management. So that's how it happened. Uh, I wasn't upset about it at all. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, in terms of what it did for me, in terms of my media career, it was fantastic because that's what I was concentrating on. And, you know, that's many, quite a few years ago, I can't remember. But it was really good because it brought me to the front of people's minds in terms of uh, getting in touch with certain things. And uh, it, it kind of helped me a lot. Um, I suppose now, when it happens, because that was such a long time ago, I get phone calls now when people get married and say, what's it like being sacked after, uh, after a short period of time? And it wasn't like that, because he was my mate, and I was doing them a favour, and we actually got what he wanted. So that's the truth behind it. Um, I'm not really worried about it, because if people still want to phone me up and ask me about it, it's absolutely fine. Now, as I say, I'm, I'm glad that I got to speak to you about it, because... It's one of those stories where I've heard it so many times, you'll have heard it so many times, and I thought, I've always wanted to know the true story, because when, when people say the 10 minutes thing, there's, there's always more to football than the simplicity that it's presented in, so mm -hmm. no, thank you for that, and, and in terms of the media side, you're doing that, you're involved, and you have been involved with show racism, the red card, you yeah. have also been awarded an MBE for your services, to tackle discrimination. I mean, your career after football has been, been very interesting. And in terms of the coaching side, have you moved on from that now and fully focused on the media and campaigning side? Uh, well, not really. It all kind of helps me in what I do, in all honesty. Um, at Premier League Productions, not only do I do, do live shows, but I'm head of, head of analysis there as well. And because of the analysis on television that we do, it's evolving all the time, like touch tables, trying to train players coming on to use the touch table, do analysis. And I've been doing that for the last 10 years. And because I'm a fully qualified pro license, I got my pro license in 2007. So I've been a, a fully qualified coach for like 13 years now. It's really helped me in this role, which is part of my job at, at Premier League Productions. And so, no, the culture, that's how I watch games. I watch games in, in a, in a, in a, with the eyes of a coach, with eyes of a manager and then try and relate that in television to make it interesting for people. So they might see things that they would never see before. And with the instruments that we've got now, all the cameras that are at Premier League grounds, because we've got this tactical camera which sees all 22 players on the full-size pitch. And then you can go get, that, get those pictures and you can actually transfer them onto a touchscreen and draw on them and get in place to get into their minds to show people what they're thinking is really, really interesting. So it actually really helped me in my in my uh, um, television career. 
yes, I do still kind of uh, do some punditry. I do kind of semi-present. But that's something that I do behind the scenes, which I'm really, really proud of and really enjoy. We, we actually produce a, an, an analysis show with people like Matt Holland and Phil Neville and Tim Sherwood and Glenn Hoddle on Premier League. You wouldn't see it because these shows go out globally, but not yeah. in the UK because of Sky and, and BTF rights here. So it's really helped me. Coaching Bug is still there. Um, it's something that I, I'm passionate about. Um, and, but it's helped me actually in my television career to kind of show things from a different side. Absolutely. And to rewind back to the very start, you're born in London in the, in the 60s. What was your childhood yeah. like growing up in London around that time? Well, I was born, um, my parents were both from Sierra Leone, West Africa, but they met in, in London and they came over in the 50s. I've got four elder sisters. There's Lauren, Linda, Lorna and Lena. I'm Leroy. Yes, my dad was a little bit eccentric <laughs> in terms of the L's. Um, and I was brought up in South London. And where our family house is, um, I can see Brixton Prison from the bottom. From If I walk out of the, my front door, I can see Brixton Prison. It's about 100 yards up the road. And uh, so it's, it's in Clapham, Brixton, in that area. And that's where I was brought up. And I had a wonderful upbringing. You know, we had no money. We weren't rich. We were, I suppose people say we were poor. But we were, uh, I suppose, experienced rich. You know, I, I went to school down the road. I played in the streets. I, my sisters did all the hard work because I was the only boy. I was spoiled. Um, you know, so I never went hungry. And, um, you know, I, did, I had a really happy upbringing. And, you know, every time when I started going to secondary school, I had to walk through Brixton Prison to get to school. My dad said, look, if anything ever happens, where you're, you're, you get in trouble. That's basically where you'll end up. And that was a really good thing to have hanging over you. So I didn't get into trouble. I, I played my football. I wasn't, you know, at school, I did my O-levels. And then um, I just wanted to play football. I wanted to play sport. But I did, never, ever thought that I'd become a professional footballer. But fortunately, when I was growing up, there was a school football system. And I played for London schools and I went to play for England schools. And that's how I got, got spotted when I was, what, I think 16 years old, playing at Richard and Evans Sports Ground, which is where the old crazy gang, Wimbledon team, used to train. You would have seen pictures of them burning things out of the dressing rooms of players' kits and very famous pictures of the crazy gang where they played. And I was playing for London schools. And uh, it was against Chelsea, I think. And uh, after the game, a Chelsea scout had left his card for me. And uh, a guy called Derry Quigley, who's a Fulham scout, had waited behind and invited me to go and train. So I signed a non-contract agreement with Fulham for three months while I was still at school. Um, within two months, I had become a professional footballer. And that was, and I never even dreamt about becoming a professional. I just loved sport. I was playing cricket as well. So from being at school doing my A-levels, I went to becoming a professional footballer in two months under Malcolm McDonald and, and Ray Harford were the coaches there. And uh, that was just through the school's football system. And so that's how, that's how I started. That's brilliant. And in terms of getting to Fulham at that age, you mentioned the two names there. I want to focus on Malcolm McDonald, a Newcastle United legend. What mm -hmm. was it like having someone like him to sort of be your mentor when you were coming through the system? Because he was a famous forward as well. Yeah, everybody knew about Super Mac. You know, uh, he had legs like that yeah they were, they were really bow legs and I my first um uh, interaction was with Malcolm was when he, he picked me up from Craven Cottage and took me to the training ground my first day of training and he had one of these great big citrons which used to the suspension you turn the engine on the suspension would lift up like that at the end you have to wait for the suspension to lift up and then off you go and it had a digital clock on it and he used to smoke cigars all the time and there was, it was no seatbelts. It wasn't quite, they didn't have clunk click every trip at that time. It was no seatbelts. I sat in the car and it, was, it wasn't far. It was a, to the Gillette, Gillette Corner. It was only a few miles. But I just remember this digital clock going up to 100 miles an hour while he was smoking a cigar and just leaning back and just driving, just telling me what a great club it was and how you're going to be. And I was absolutely pooping in my pants. I'd never been so frightened in my life. We got to the training ground and I had my first training session. But, it was, but within training, Ray Harford was, was a coach. Terry Mancini was there as well, really good coach. Uh, Ray Harford was, was a coach, obviously went on to manage a coach with Kenny Dalglish and won the, the title with Blackburn. And he was a terrific coach. But all Malcolm used to do was just step in. And we're having this finishing session one day. It was myself, um, Gordon Davis, Dean Coney, 
a few a few others. And he said, no, 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 no. That's not how you do it. It was going all over the place. We were missing the target. And he just got the ball, ran up, and just hit it in the roof of the net. And that was what Malcolm used to do. He used to say, do not, do not try and hit the corners. Do not hit it low down. Keepers always go down early. So always hit the roof of the net. But it was easier said than done, to be honest, because we tried it and it was going absolutely everywhere. But he just made it look so easy, even at his age with his, and he had really bad knees, he made it look so easy. And that's what he did. He just used to step in, do little things. But the main thing was he just made you feel like you could, you were superhuman. You know, he made you feel like you were the best player in the world. Ray did all the coaching. And Malcolm just made you feel like you were a million dollars all the time. And so it was a wonderful upbringing. And I played with people like, I suppose, Paul Parker. You would know Ray Houghton was there. Tony Gale. It was a really good young Fulham side, you know, at that time. And, uh, um, yeah, really enjoyable upbringing. I just, it sounds brilliant when you mentioned those names and, the, and having a coach like him. It just must have been a really good time coming through the system at Fulham. And when you progress towards the first team what is that like when it comes to making your debut are you excited nervous a mix of the two it was a mix of the two um, I mean my debut was when I was 17 and um, it was at Leicester uh, away it's like if you can imagine I was 16 when I, I signed it was the next year when I actually made my debut but I, it was a nightmare it was away from home um, and it was icy it was in the middle of winter and it had the uh, undersole heating but the undersole heating at that time you'd have a few feet of soft a few feet of hard a few feet or so, and so you didn't know what you'd fall in all over the place. And early in the first half, I fell on my collarbone, and I didn't know, but I'd actually broken my collarbone. But I actually played the rest of the game. Uh, I broke it in the first half. Went to hospital, and they found I had a, re- a compound fracture of the collarbone, so I was out for eight weeks. And so I didn't make my debut till my home debut, my next game, until I suppose eight months later after that, when I was fit and, and back. And that was at home to Derby. I'll never forget it because I've got the pictures here at home and I scored, scored twice, played up front with a guy called Tony Seeley who was like, brilliant, really helped me. And uh, we drew 2-2, two, two. I scored twice. And, you know, so my home debut was terrific and, and that set me off on a really great, I suppose, uh, had a great relationship with the home fans, they, you know, because I worked hard and scored goals. And that's why I kept on going back to Fulham. But that was my home debut. So, um, yeah, it was, it was easily, it was more memorable than my actual debut which was away from home where I broke my collarbone. When you when you get an injury at that stage when you're just coming through, is describe that, that feeling because you it's a dream come true to get into the team and then when you get a setback it must be the worst thing ever. It is the worst thing ever because it you just it's not something that you you kind of uh, expect to happen and when it does it's a real shock to the system. If you can imagine I broke my collarbone so I had to go home. I had a in those days, you had a figure of eight strapping, so you could pull your shoulders back to pull the collarbone back in place. So I didn't go anywhere. I didn't go out of the house for, for six weeks. And, um, and you're thinking, all the negative thoughts, will I get back? Will I get another opportunity? Have I lost my opportunity? But if you're patient and you work hard, you, you get fit again. And, uh, you know, it teaches you how to deal with adversity because that's a, that's a, a lot that a professional footballer has to do. You know, it's not only turning up on a Saturday, people think it's about, you know, all the glory scoring goals. A lot of the time is about dealing with the tough times when you're injured and you're not in the side and how you're going to get back. And it, it, you have to learn quickly. And that's what it did for me. It made me learn quickly with how to deal with that sort of uh, trauma and, uh, and how to use it in a positive way to come back fitter and, and stronger. As well as making your debut, another moment when you're a forward-thinking player has to be your first goal. I mean, when you score your first professional goal, how proud are you? And also how proud are your family as well? Really proud, really proud, and uh, it's, it's fortunate that my first goal, I've got a picture of it, and uh, it's at the it's at Craven Cottage, and they had the, they had the uh, above the stand, they had this uh, big screen that had goal written on it. So my first goal is it's a, it's a black and white picture, it's got goal written, on it. and so it, it kind of reminds me of that that moment. Uh, fortunately, I went on to score a few more goals uh, for Fulham, but that first one was very very special, and it just took took the edge off as to whether you can do it because you do it in the in the reserves. Or you do it in a, you know friendlies, but doing it in under the lights, uh, which it was in an evening with in front of a massive crowd, it kind of means yeah, I, I I know I can do this. I have real belief in my ability because you know training reserve games is nothing like playing the real thing until you play in the proper professional game of football. Behind you know where there's something on it where there's a big crowd, either cheering you on or trying to get on your back. 
you don't really know whether you can do it. So that is the key. You know, from my point of view, being a centre forward, it was scoring goals. I suppose for anybody else in their position, it's about playing well as a midfield player, being able to pass the ball, win your tackles. As a defender, can you stop the opposition? Until you actually achieve that, you don't know if you can have some sort of career. And that's what it did for me. It gave me that belief. What was it like playing in those first three seasons at the Cottage? Because even now, it's one of the most iconic old school grounds. I know you, they're soon going to build the Riverside Stand and modernise it, which will be great for the area and the club. But it's just a, it's a classic throwback of a stadium, isn't it? Well, I, I don't know any other stages than like Croydon Cottage. It's, it's an absolute delight to play football there. Um, you know, the, the environment, which is by the river, especially when you're in, in the summer and it's sunny there and people are just coming out. It's like a day out, um, you know, at the seaside to a lot of people. It's just a lovely environment. And, and um, you know, compare that to, I suppose, you know, when I played at West Ham, a totally different envi environment. You know, great when you played at home, really difficult for uh, away, away teams. But that wasn't the case at home. It was a lovely place to go and play football. It was a lovely place to play your first football there as well because it was, was a family atmosphere. It still is that family atmosphere. And they, I think they're working hard to keep it, even though they are going to have a magnificent stadium, which I think is going to almost kind of edge over the Thames, which will be absolutely uh, amazing. But, you know, I, I mean, the story I can tell you is that when I eventually went to, to West Ham, I'd left Fulham, I went to QPR, went back to Fulham, and I went to West Ham, and I, I, get, I scored on my debut at West Ham. I actually um, left Fulham on the Friday, played for West Ham on the, on the Saturday. And when I scored the goal, I got messages back that the whole of Craven Cottage just erupted and started applauding when they heard that I'd, I'd scored the winner at, at West Ham. And I still go back there and, uh, you know, uh, uh, and they've got this Fulham Legends thing where, you know, you, you feel that you're, you're a Fulham legend. I'm not sure about that, but I do feel that, you know, it was a great place to start my football career. A great place to start. You, you were doing well with Fulham, as you mentioned. Fans' favourite coming through. In the end, what attracted you to QPR? Well, it wasn't that. It wasn't. They came in for me, and uh, they wanted to pay. I think Fulham needed the the money. Um, I was only nineteen, twenty, and you know you're going to you're going to a top division. And QPR had people like Terry Fenwick, who just played in the World Cup, you know, and just you know uh, played in the England team where you know Maradona scored that goal, the hand of God. Steve Wicks, you had John Gregory, um, you you had all these international team of internationals. Uh, uh, really good players and Phil Parks, I think, who was there and, um, you know, Johnny Byrne and Gary Bannister, really good players. And so, and it was just up the road. So, look, it, it's an opportunity I had to take. Unfortunately for me, the QPR played on a plastic pitch at that time and it, and it just didn't, it wasn't enjoyable at all. I'm sure that's why I've got bad knees now. You know, so they didn't help. It wasn't enjoyable for me to go there as a young player to go and play on that pitch because we used to win 1-0 most weeks at home, lose away from home, but um, it was more suited to the smaller people like Gary Bannister and, and uh, uh, Johnny Byrne, who, who worked power. I was full power and, and strength, and it wasn't suited to that. So I didn't, I didn't enjoy the football as much as I should have done at home. Um, and that's why eventually I, I went back to Fulham. In terms of QPR, you worked under the legendary Jim Smith. What was he yes. like to work with? Brilliant. I, I love Jim. I absolutely loved it. I think everybody loved Jim. I, 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 the story I can tell you is about 1986 when, when we're playing in the Milk Cup final against his old side, Oxford, Oxford United. And, and uh, Jim just made it fun. He'd lose his head sometimes. You swear, you swear we're the best of them. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, we had a dugout. The dugout at, at, at Loftus Road was actually below the ground and sometimes he, he'd jump up swearing and cursing and he'd bang his head on the top of the dugout. And one time I was, I was sat on the bench, I was a sub, and uh, it cut and there was blood dripping down his head, but no one would tell him. So while he was cursing, there was this blood dripping down the front of his head and he knew nothing about it. And we were just all absolutely creasing up um, and he knew nothing about it. But on the other side of that, he loved the joke. And we were on this, uh, I'm telling you about the cup final, the milk cup final in 1986, on the way to, to Wembley. Um, just all of a sudden, Jim just took out this monkey, this puppet from nowhere. And so started talking to this puppet, saying, who's going to win the fight? We're going to win. Yeah, we're going to win the fight. Just kept it up all the way down Wembley Way. I suppose just to take our mind off the, off the uh, uh, occasion. And we were just all creased up, absolutely just laughing our heads off. And he used to do that all the time. Unfortunately, we actually lost the final 3-0 to Oxford United that day. 
But we had, I think we had the better time. We might have lost the final, but we had the more memorable time because of Jim, because he was such a, a great character. We had a great party afterwards and, and I just had loads, loads and loads of time for him. And, uh, you know, I kept in touch with him when I, when I left the club. And it's a real shame that I think he passed away not so long ago. It was this year that Jim passed away. And so, you know, obviously condolences to, to his family because he affected so many, so many players in a positive way and he was a, a, a truly great manager. Well, as I say, you've summed it up nicely there. Every single player I've spoken to so far on the podcast that's played under him always says the same thing that you've said there. They always say, really funny guy, bubbly guy, really good man-manager and, mm. and, and sadly missed. Yeah, absolutely. And knew his football as well. You can't just be bubbly and happy. And He knew, he knew a player, he knew the game. And, and he got some really good entertaining sides out there. And, and if you go through the amount of players that Jim Smith found and, and, uh, and nurtured, uh, you, there'll be, there'll be <laughs> yeah, I think you'd run out of time because there are thousands and thousands of players that he's affected in a positive way. When, when you leave QPR, you return to Fulham. Had the club changed in any way, considering you'd been away for a couple of seasons? Yeah, massively, because Jimmy Hill was there. And Jimmy was, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to leave QBR because they were in the top division. I wanted to go to another side. I just thought about going back was a, a bad move. But Jimmy Hill, who I'd always been around, he's the one who told me to get to media training when I was eighteen. He got me to, you know, do my first commentary with Jonathan Pierce, who I think is a magnificent um, uh, 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 broadcaster. And I did it with Jonathan Pierce and Bobby Moore. That was my first, you know, um, 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 commentary. And I, at the time, you don't realise it, but it sets you up and it set me up to do my media career. So Jimmy gave me all that advice. He persuaded me to go back to Fulham. Um, and it was the best thing I, I ever did because I went in, I felt like a different, a different person to the one who'd left Fulham. I felt I was ready. I felt I was a number one striker. I had the number nine shirt. I think I went on, scored so many goals that season. And, uh, you know, I just, every time I got on the pitch, I felt I was going to score at least one, uh, you know, playing, playing for Fulham in that side. And got to, to the end, getting to the end of the season, and, and I was surprised that, um, that, that well, I suppose there's no surprise, but I thought I'd see out that season. But Watford came in for me, they were in the top division. Um, but first, that's before West Ham, and Steve Harrison was a manager. I actually went to Vicarage Road, agreed the deal to go there. And uh, I spoke to Elton John, and he said, Welcome to the club. And as I was kind of leaving, Steve Harrison said, Oh, you do know that you have to live, live, live within like uh, 12 miles of the ground. I went, Pardon? Yeah, you have to live, you have to move your family. And my family were really settled in South London and there was no way that I was going to move them. So I said, no, I can't, I can't do that. So the deal fell through. So I walked out of there, drove back to the training ground. And the next day, that was the Thursday, on the Friday, John Lyle turned up with the Fulham training ground and they signed me. And on the Saturday, who were we playing? Watford. And, uh, and I scored the winner and we beat them 1-0 and Watford went down. And so, you know, it was, a, you know, Going back to Fulham was the best thing yeah, that I could do to, to end up at West Ham, which was just a magnificent football club in so many ways. In terms of that season at Fulham, as you mentioned, number nine shirt on your back, scoring goals for fun, really became the main man that season. You told us about the interest from Watford and then West Ham. Going to West Ham, a massive club in, in, again in London, what, how was that different to your experiences at Fulham and, and QPR? Because a really big club, the likes of... Bobby Moore, legends of the club that have really been part of that 66 World Cup winning team. West Ham is a, uh, like Fulham, is a unique football club because of its fans. And um, it's a shame we can't talk about Upton Park because it's no longer there. I drove past it the other day and it's full of houses and I think it's a real shame. You know, you look at Anfield and, I, and you know, people say Anfield, Upton Park, it has that history. It really does. And it's a shame they couldn't develop the ground and keep the, the feeling that that you know, it was such a fantastic place to play football because the fans were so close to you. But again, you know, I mentioned you know, scoring on my debut, just the, the the fans just took me to their hearts, you know. And you know, I'm saying I was the, the best player in the world, but what I did, I tried hard, I worked hard, and that end of the season, you know, I think I scored goals consi consistently, and we stayed up. And uh, and it wasn't just the experience on the pitch; it was the experience off the pitch. When you came off the pitch, the fans were absolutely. They loved you, but they, they had massive respect for you, and and they held you in high esteem, and you know, and they, 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 they showed you what it was, what it meant to put that West Ham shirt on, and John Lyle did that in, in massively as well, and 
it's, it was a different club because it's a working class club with working class people, with working class values, which I am, who loved the game and supported you no matter what. It wasn't just about winning at West Ham. You had to play a certain way as well. Um, that's how it was when I was there. Fortunately, people like Tony Gale, who'd been at Fulham, was there and he really helped me to, to settle in. But you had some great... I mean, Liam Brady was there. He was you know, in his early 30s. Unbelievable. Alan Devonshire, ridiculous. Paul Lintz was a young player there. Alvin Martin, England International. Phil Parts, England International. Julian Dix, Ray Stewart, Scottish International. No, these were, you know, Mark Ward, fantastic on that right side. These were just terrific players. I went there when Tony Cotty was there uh, just before he went to Everton, played with Frank McAvenny. So I just reeling off these names. And so the calibre of player, and no disrespect to, to Fulham and QBR, it just wasn't there. And you're just stepping into a, a different level. Of, of, uh, of player and a different expectation where you had to get you had to be able to get on the ball and play Stuart Robson was there as well fantastic friend of mine who's at Arsenal and, and I'm, I'm, I, did, I only left him till last because Billy Bonds is just an absolute legend of the club um, and you could only but learn off those sorts of players and, and I did I learned very quickly you mentioned Frank McAvenny, a big character, mm. well known in Scotland, of course, as well. What was he like mm. to play with? Frank was just a, a joy. And I mean, a joy, not just playing with, but off the pitch as well. He was, I think, it's no, he wouldn't mind me saying he loved to have a good time. He loved to have a good time off the pitch, but he also loved to have a good time on the pitch as well. He liked to express himself, you know, long blonde hair, uh, you know, and, and he, he, he was a, it was like, a superstar, you know, I think he went out with, you know, with Pastry Girl, Jenny Bly, and, and, you know, he was a superstar. But he wasn't put on. That's just how he was. He was exuberant. He had a great character. He loved to laugh. And he loved to laugh while he was playing football. And he loved to laugh while he was off the pitch. And so we had some great times. We had some great times with Frank, on and off the pitch, has to be said. And I, I you know, really, really did like the guy. He was a top, top guy. Um, I haven't seen as much of him because I know he's up in, he's back up in Scotland now, Frank. Yeah. But um, he was an absolute dream to to be around, you know. And that's what it was with West Ham. The, the fans expected you to express himself. They absolutely adored him at West Ham. And sometimes, you know, he went there for one and a quarter million. And, it, and sometimes it didn't quite come off him. But he never stopped running. He never stopped working. He never stopped trying. And that's what West Ham fans expected. And that's why, you know, they took him to, to their hearts. So, yeah, a lot of respect for Frank McAvenny. Another Scott I want to ask you about your manager for a brief spell um, of a season, Lou McCarry. What was Lou like to work with? Because an interesting character. Lou was an interesting character. He was different. I don't think the fit was right for Lou at, 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 at West Ham. Came from Swindon and tried to change the whole environment where we were always like a footballist. Like sometimes we weren't successful. Sometimes we went down. But Lou tried to turn us into a really hard-working, um, clinical side I, I would say and we just weren't that sort of football club so it was all it was difficult for him but he'd had his success at Swindon playing that way so you can understand when he came in and tried to make us fitter try to make us run more we did less with the ball um but it just caused fractions within the dressing room where this club had never been used to that that sort of thing so it was always always difficult for him and th the thing is when he came I was injured uh, I, I was injured and he was desperate to get me back and and um because I think I was the type of player who was hard-working, strong, quick. And he tried to get me back a couple of times and I didn't, couldn't, couldn't get a run of games. I'd get one game, get injured again. So I couldn't help him uh, at all while he was there in terms of uh, on the pitch. So it was a difficult time uh, for Lou at, 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 uh, at, uh, at West Ham. But again, what, a, what a, a lovely man. I spoke to him afterwards, you know, years afterwards. And he's, yeah, he's a really good guy, a lovely guy. Um, and it didn't quite work for him at West Ham, but, you know, he was a great success at Swindon and, you know, and what a great player he was, by the way, as well. Absolutely. And mm. how, overall, how do you reflect back in your time at West Ham? A couple of loan spells, Fulham and Charlton, but to play for the club and have the special memories of Upton Park, it must be a fond, fond time in your life. It was. It wasn't long enough because of my injuries, but the time that I was there and the time I was playing Stanford, forward, I, I did all right. You know, I did okay. And, uh, and I did my absolute best. And I suppose that if I hadn't played, when I played games when I shouldn't have played, you know, with my injuries and stuff. But people say, do you have regrets? And I said, no, because at the time I needed to play because we were in, we were in a difficult situation. Um, so, 
loved my time at West Ham. Uh, the, the last two years were difficult because of injuries, but they treated me with the utmost respect. And when Billy Bonds came and said to me, "Look, it was time for me to move on," it was, and I managed, and you know, I managed to secure a move to Bristol. And you know, sometimes I said that you know, going back to Fulham was the right thing for me. Well, coming going to Bristol City was the right thing for me. I still live in the area. It was a lovely club to go to, and I managed to to, to uh, play the last couple of years with. Uh, Andy Cole and Jackie Jakonowski. I did all their running when they, you know, to be honest, at Crystal City, but absolutely loved that uh, as well. Russell Osman was here with Mitch Witch as well. So a good friend of mine, another great player. So, um, you know, I'll take all the positives. I really had a really enjoyable career for the most part. Uh, the injuries didn't help, but no regrets. In terms of the move to Bristol, you talked about the fact that you enjoyed your time there at the club. You talked about the fact... It's a club that, in an area that, that you like. I want to talk to you about Andy Cole. I, I have to. He's a player who, he was only there for a short time. He had his loan spell and then he was mm-hmm. there permanently before moving on to Newcastle. But what a career he had. And just what was he like to play with? Was he, was he always as clinical as he went on to be? Clinical. When he was with me, he was supremely greedy as well. And then you won't mind me saying that. He was supremely greedy. He'd shoot from anywhere. He thought he could <laughs> score from anywhere. But I'd let him off because he could score from anywhere. Uh, there's other players who were greedy and they couldn't, but he could, and he went on to prove it. Um, and we came, we moved at the same time in March, I think, of that season. We we stayed in the same hotel, um, you know, we went around together. And and it's funny you mentioned that when he moved to, to Newcastle, we we were actually uh, he rang me on the night that Newcastle came in for me, him, and because he, he didn't have an agent, and so I managed to secure him an agent so they could get the move for him. Uh, he writes about it in his book, but. Um, I loved playing with Andy Cole because he would score all the goals. And I, I, I was a centre-forward who, yeah, I did like scoring goals, but my job was to hold the ball up, to bring other people in, to get people out the pitch, to get head, win, win my headers, go back, defend corners. And that was my job. That was my job. Yeah, the goals were an added bonus. But if I had someone next to me who scored 20, 30, 40 goals a season, it made my job so much easier. And so I loved playing up front with him. It was an absolute joy. And no surprise he went on to achieve what he did. You know, people were, uh, you know, at, at the time, the reason why I think Arsenal let him go because Kevin Campbell was there. Now, Kevin Campbell, an outstanding footballer. And, you know, people say, was it a mistake? No, it, it was a mistake because they had outstanding footballers. But when you let a player like Andy Cole go, go and it wasn't just about his, his ability, it's about his desire to be successful, you know they're all gonna, always going to come back and bite you on the bum. And because he had such outstanding um, technical ability, but he was a fantastic athlete as well. He looked languid in, languid in the way that he ran, but he was supremely quick. And that confidence that you need to be successful. And there are lots of people uh, question him as being arrogant. No, it wasn't arrogant. It was supreme confidence in his own ability. And if you could play like him, you would have that supreme confidence. So I was delighted to see him go and score goals for Man United, to have a partnership with Dwight York like he did, because he understood the game. And that's why I love playing up front with him. You know, I said selfish, selfish in his finishing. When he got into a position where he could get a shot on target, he'd take it and invariably he'd hit the target and invariably it'd end up in the back of the net. And uh, I'm surprised he didn't go on to get, well, I suppose I think there's other reasons why he didn't go on to get as many England caps as he should have done. Because I thought at one point he was as good as anybody in in the country. But look, he had a magnificent career and uh, he's, I think he's an ambassador at, uh, at Man United now. I know he's had his... his uh, illness with, with kidneys and, yeah. and uh, getting over that and I've seen him a few times in around PLP and it's always a joy to see him because we get on really well But uh, and, he, and he, he wrote the forward on my book as well which I'm really grateful for so um, he's, he's a tremendous footballer and to, to, to play with someone like that towards the end of your career which, which I did, again absolute dream, absolute joy In terms of Andy you, you talked there about the fact you felt you should have got even more England caps. Something mm-hmm. I'm interested to ask you from your perspective of playing alongside them and your expertise and obviously working in the Premier League um, with PLP. When people talk about goal scorers, the, the, the sort of torchbearer is always Alan Shearer. And, and mm-hmm. rightly so for what Alan achieved in the game. But Andy Cole's name's not mentioned for me personally anywhere near enough when you look at his record and where he is on the list of all-time scorers. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. I to- totally agree. Alan Shearer, yeah, absolutely magnificent, magnificent footballer. Was Andy Cole on his level? Absolutely. 
absolutely no doubt that and um and andrew and i think it's because people saw him as being arrogant and and so he he people i suppose would warm to alan because of his demeanor on the pitch and he was someone who was um more it looked like he, he was more about himself he wasn't he just wanted to go and do a job and he was supremely confident and i think people took him the wrong way but that shouldn't have counted against him when you're trying to pick a, an england team um, and i think that's it, sometimes you have to look at the people who are picking the team who want people to behave in a certain way so you look at i, I put it back to brian clough why brian clough never took the england job the fa because of the people who were in the fa wouldn't have him because of the way he was he should have been england manager for many many years there's absolutely no doubt about it and in a, I suppose a smaller sense that applies to people like Andy Cole as well because they thought mm, not sure we can relate to him but it shouldn't have been about that it should have been about his football. In terms of your senior career you've talked us through from the start to finish I want to ask you some questions about some teammates who was the best trainer you worked with? The best trainer oh that, that, that is I'm going to put I'm going to put two up there okay uh, the Billy Bonds was the, the, the most ridiculous athlete I've ever seen in my life. And even when he wasn't playing, when he became manager, we used to go on long runs and then Billy would run to the back to push everybody up from the back and then run to the front to drag everybody along because he, he was just such a, a fantastic athlete. And, and that was when he'd finished playing. So Billy Bonds and the other guy, Stuart Robson. Now Stuart was at Arsenal, a tremendous footballer. And we were injured at the same time at West Ham. And we, we, we actually sort and went and got our personal, uh, he, uh, personal trainers. And he got me onto a personal trainer to help me with my injury. And I've never seen anybody as dedicated a trainer as Stuart. He'd get up at eight o'clock in the morning. He dragged me in with him and we'd go through our work. We'd finish at six o'clock in the evening. Uh, and then we did that for a good year to 18 months to get back fit. And we've both been written off as to whether we would get back and play. And Stuart really helped me to get back and play when people thought I wouldn't. And, and himself as well. Um, and at times when he played a game, he'd go away, he'd go home on crutches the next day. People don't realise you know, what players went through. I hope Stuart doesn't mind me telling you that because it's the absolute truth. He was in absolute agony, but he'd go away, do his rehabilitation, get back and play again. So for me, dedication, hard work. Um, yeah, Billy Bonds and Stuart Robson were absolutely ridiculous trainers. Who were a player or a couple of players that just absolutely hated training, but when it came to a Saturday, they were they were brilliant on the on the day. Well, there's one player comes, Jackie Jakonowski. Jackie, you know him because Jackie was at Celtic. Yeah, yeah. Jackie the pole. Uh, he yeah, he didn't bother with training and stuff like that. And then he did sometimes he didn't bother turning up for training <laughs> at times. But then he turned up on the, on a Saturday and do some absolutely ridiculous things, you know. In which was so in terms of somebody who didn't really want to train properly but then did it on a Saturday is Jackie Jakonowski. In terms of people who were good training and did it on a Saturday, I have to, I have to mention Liam Brady as well because he was just uh, just ridiculous. And I, I, I again, you have these experiences of players, you wonder, you know, when he was at Arsenal, I watched him play, then he went to Italy, magnificent. And when he came to West Ham, he was magnificent as well. He just, I just wondered what he must have been like when he was at Arsenal, uh, 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 I think, and when he, after he came back, when he was in Italy. Absolutely ridiculous left foot I've ever seen uh, in my life, and uh, just an absolute joy. Sometimes you just sit trying to sit there. Oh, yes, that's very good. And that was me. I thought, oh god, I'm, I'm part of this team, you know. So you applaud things that that he did. So you know, in terms of players I played with, Jackie for not training but doing it on a Saturday, and, and Liam Brady for just being just the, the best ridiculous player I've ever seen. Who was the biggest mourner? The biggest moan, Incy, Paul Incy, Incy moaned, moaned, he's the, really moans about everything. Um, um, he, <laughs> uh, but he could moan about it because he was a terrific player. Well, it's funny, when I went to West Ham, he was actually playing as an emergency centre forward and I took, took his place and then he dropped back into in the midfield. But he was always, he always moaning in training, always moaning at people. Yeah, get do this, do that. Never stop moaning. Um, but he wanted to get the best out of people. That's how he tried to get the best out of people. So that was an easy one. Incy was the, the biggest moaner, but he was an unbelievable talent as well. Who was the toughest player you played with who you just would not mess with? Billy Bonds. Um, I would not mess with Billy Bonds in, not, anywhere. I just, but 
the tough players weren't the ones who used to kind of tackle you from behind or, you know, try to kick you. Or The tough players were, were the quiet ones. And Billy was a quiet one because you'd, you'd give it, you give it them and they just just brush it off like you, you weren't there, like you were flying. And there's him, there's, and, and there's tough, I played with, but players I played against, people like Terry Hurlock, who was at, at Millwall. Again, they just, they take it, but they give it back a bit more. Jimmy Case, when he was at Liverpool, like a silent assassin, you know, and people don't realise, you know, people like, you know, they, they take it, they just give it back. Uh, and, you know, they, they were the real hard men. The hard men weren't the ones who went around flying at the tackles and from the side or from the back. They do it front on. They, they face up to you. They give it to you. Um, and there was lots of, to be honest, that there was more of that kind of player when, when I played. I used to play against a hard man, I think, every single week. You know, Chelsea had people like Doug Rudvig and uh, Mickey Joy. Um, I suppose that you had the, 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 the Vinnie Jones and people like that. Who did Vinnie? You know, he, he was a decent footballer, but he was a tough old, tough old boy. You know, he was a, he was a hard man. And there, was, uh, there was one, at least one, in every single team. But in terms of proper hard, um, I, I always stand behind Billy Bonds. I, I didn't find anybody tougher, harder, um, and more honest as well. Honest as well. Never went to hurt anybody. Honestly, proper, hard player. In terms of your playing career, very successful one, a playing career you look back with fondness. In terms of coaching, you started at Gloucester City. What attracted you to that job? I know it was a player-manager role, but it was completely different to the levels you'd played at before. It was, but I'd been coaching at, at, at Bristol City and, uh, uh, and I wanted to get out and have a go and they gave me an opportunity. The chairman, uh, Keith Garner, said, you know, I wanted a young manager who, who could still play a little bit and I could stay, play a little bit. And he he bought into my vision. I wanted to play. I wanted to go to a non-league club full of footballers who could play and challenge. I mean, the team that beat with Cheltenham around that time. And you know, we... <laughs> I know it sounds, we were un, we were too successful. We got to, we got to, uh, um, I think it was about March, and we had 14 games left to play in about um, two months, and we were in the semi-final of the trophy. We just we been absolutely brilliant. I think we lost in the trophy two-one in the semi-final. Graham Pohl was the manager then. I don't know. He sent off one of my players who I never ever agree with, um, but we lost two-one. And then we looked at the season before us, and we had seven games. And we had to play in 14 days. Now, if you can imagine, this was a part-time football team. And, you know, so we only trained Tuesdays and Thursdays. So we played Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And we got to the last game of the season where we needed to win to go up. And the crowd, it was uh, Kings Home, was at our home ground, packed 3,000 people at Kings Home. Cheltenham were playing down the road, but we needed to win to go up. And we, we went, I think we went one up. And then visibly, I just saw that their legs just went. The lads were just treading water. More or less had to play the same team every week. Their legs just went. And we ended up losing that game, I think, 3-1. And um, Cheltenham went up. They drew 0-0 and Cheltenham went up. Steve Cottrell was a the manager then at Cheltenham. They went up, got uh, in, into the, the higher division. And i never forget, the players were distraught and they uh, we went out on a night out and they all come up to me apologizing to me for for letting them let <laughs> letting me down i said you'd not i said Dude, none of those players ever let me down in fact i i'm so proud of what they achieved they never they don't realize it because they don't have the medal they don't have the promotion but that was just an incredible incredible season and what they achieved in the way going to work training tuesday and thursday getting the semi-final the trophy Getting having to play seven games in 14 days, it's never happened before. But you had you, know, you had to play the games before the end of the season. There's no there's no room for for manoeuvre. So I was really really proud of that. Unfortunately, the next season, like non-league clubs, we had financial difficulties, and I said, look, I'll stay on and I'll see us through. We finished 12th, and then that was me. That was time for me to move on. I got offered the job as an assistant academy director at Bristol City. And that's when my Liam was at Bristol City at that time. So I went back and because uh, I, I kind of managed Liam when he was at yeah, the academy at Bristol City. In terms of your managerial career, your coaching career, Mertha Tidville, Torquay, um, the, the spell that you were there for four seasons, a spell at Brentford as well, and mm -hmm. also Sierra Leone, who you were also capped by. I mean, 
just describe your coaching career and managerial career. What were the real highlights when you look back on it? The highlights were getting promoted with Torquay was just ridiculous. It was the most, we, we again, we two and a half thousand crowds at home. Um, because the way way that we did it, I had I had so many footballers in the side. I didn't have a idea. I talk about Harman. I didn't have really have a, a anybody could win the ball back. So we we got to places like Hull, and Hull had just had their new stadium beat under Peter Taylor, who's the ex England manager. And I'll never forget we went up there and um, we I just used to say to the players and just keep the ball for the first 20, 25 minutes. And every time we did that, the home fans would just get on the backs of their team and say, "This is just it's only talking. Go and go and get the ball." As soon as they came after us, then we played through them. And it was it was absolute joy. People like Joe Cafford, David Graham, Alex Russell, Jason Fowler, all terrific footballers. And we got to the last game of the season. And we were playing South End away from home. Um, it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it was Mansfield, I think it was, who were playing at Cheltenham. And, or Huddersfield, might be Huddersfield actually, playing at Cheltenham, I can't remember. And um, we heard that they the Chuck Madden player sent off and we were within one, two, one. So we thought, we didn't think we were going up. We thought we were in the playoffs. But as the game came to an end, we won two, one. We heard that Chuck, uh, uh, sorry, they were losing. They equalised. And so if it stayed as it was, we were going up and we went up. Uh, John Wall was the manager at Cheltenham at the time. And I had some, having been at Bristol City's academy, Cheltenham's only up the road from Bristol City. So a lot of academy Bristol City players were playing for Cheltenham at the time. And I spoke to one, Kevin Amankwa, who was playing at the time. I said, Kevin, what, what happened? He said, you know what? When you came up to our place, we, they played Torquay. We beat them 3-1. And I'd, I'd forgotten about it, but when we, we absolutely we had played them off the park. It was one of the best performances of the season. And as I subbed my two forwards off, the whole of the ground, the Cheltenham fans applauded my players off the pitch and they had vowed that they we should go up we, we were the best team that they 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 had played and there's no way that anybody should go up and so they were determined to do everything they could to make sure because Huddersfield were more of a long ball side I think but everything they could to make sure that we went up so it's amazing the style of play that we implemented had kind of people really loved to watch us play and in Cheltenham that's what got us up in the end because they were determined to help us get up and we did and it was it was it was never expected I mean on the way home we had to stop at Tesco's to buy some beer because we didn't have anything on the coach um, and to go up and in those circumstances such a small club with hardly any resources was an absolute absolute joy. In terms of taking a team like Torquay up you've talked about how much it meant to you how much it meant to the club when you look at where the club are now as well does it fill you even more pride and you think wow what a job that was? It, it does, it does, because um, it's a tiny club, but it's a club that's full of pride. The fans absolutely love that football club. And then you're around it, you've got Plymouth, massive club, Exeter, massive club. Um, and then up the road, you've got Bristol City. So, and you're miles from everywhere, uh, to be honest. So to get players down there is, is, not, is not easy as well. You know, I'm glad they're back. They're back in the National League under Gary Johnson. Gary was at Bristol City, great track record. He's done brilliant at loads of clubs doing a magnificent job and I always keep an eye uh, on what they're doing um, you know and uh, one day I might even go back you know you never know you know uh, go back and not for 10 minutes either might be for 15 <laughs> but, um, but, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah I keep an eye on everything you know it's, it's funny because the commentator who I work with Jim Proudfoot I'm sure you've heard of Jim Proudfoot what's the yeah he's sport? I'm good at, I'm interviewing him on Tuesday oh there you go well Jim is a massive talkie fan Massive talkie fan, and he, he talks me through what's been going on. Give him, give him my regards. I haven't seen him since the lockdown, and um, you never lose it. Once you're a talkie fan, always a talkie fan. But those were some of them. And if you're after talkie fan, you, they'll tell, and people say you, you, you. But we used to keep the ball for about eighty. People talk about possession. We kept the ball for about eighty percent possession at times. We were that good, and the players all bought into it. And so you, you, you get moments like that where players weren't on big money but they loved coming in and playing for us and uh, uh, and, and that's uh, a fan and the other thing was I actually took Liam there on loan Liam was there when I got promoted he was there on loan got him on loan from Fulham and he helped us get over the line because he could play right back centre midfield and he, he played he, he played for us um, and I've got a picture of him and being promoted with your son at that level is, is a really nice memory to have What's it like managing your son? Um 
when people ask me that question, I always tell this story because he came up and, and uh, he, he lived with me, obviously, because we didn't, we didn't want to pay hotel expenses. And so I picked, we had breakfast together. We drove into the training ground and um, he, he came to the club from Fulham thinking it would be easy because he's a young kid and that's what they all do. And it wasn't. Your, your technique had to be spot on to play in my team and his technique wasn't. It, it, it was going to be. And so I had to give him a short, sharp shock. So we drove to the training ground he went out, got changed, and I got one of the, the captains uh, to bring him, to get him to come into my office. He came to my office and I said, Liam, I'm leaving you out tomorrow, so you won't be playing, you'll be on the bench. And he said, why don't you tell me that at home? He said, because you're not at home now, you're not my son now, you're, you're my player. I said, I said, so I've got to treat you like I would everybody else, and that's how I would have treated everybody else. The next day we played Yeovil, and funny enough, Gary Johnson, I'll never forget Gary Johnson's show. We went 2-0 down in 20 minutes. I said, Liam, come over there, get on. <laughs> got him on, and we drew the game 2-2. But from then on, he got me home. He said, why don't you tell me at home? I said, one, I needed to treat you like everybody else, and two, you needed a sharp shot because your technique, your training was just not good enough. And I have to show to the rest of the players that you are treated exactly the same as them. And now he thanks me because his techniques, he, he really worked on his techniques when he went back to Fulham, all the little things, because I'm a big a stickler for, as a coach, the little things are the most important things. That you, the details make up the bigger picture. You get all the details right, everything else just falls into place. And, uh, and he thanks me now. But that's what it was like managing the son. Our relationship is brilliant now. But you know, the only reason I treated him like that is because I knew that he was going to be decent. I knew he was going to be good. If I, if I hadn't done that, um, I wouldn't have been showing him the respect he deserves. When you look at the career that he had in the game as well, Bristol City, Fulham, played with yourself at Torquay, Reading, Ipswich, Hull, finishing at Brighton where he was so highly regarded, obviously. Mm -hmm. He's now moved on to Derby. Um, just, just how proud are you to, to see your son following your footsteps and also carve out a, a really good career in the game for himself? People always ask me that question, and I have to say, um, Liam, Liam is just a, a really nice guy, and he could have done, he, he didn't have to be a footballer, he could have done anything he wanted. So to, to see that he's had a fantastic career doesn't really, isn't a reason why I'm proud of him. I'm proud of him because he's a really good guy. He's a really lovely man, as I am my other son, Dan. They've grown up and been absolutely magnificent young men. Um, that's helped him. It's, it's shaped him. Um, and if he hadn't had a very good career, I'd be just as proud of him. Because I think people started to realise just what a good guy he was when he, you, you missed out that when he left Brighton, he went to Sky for uh, a couple of seasons and did the analysis there. People started to realise what a clever, intelligent, well-mannered well you know, young man he was. And everybody tells me that. And they don't tell me, oh, Liam, what a great player he was. They said, what a really nice guy he was. So, you know, loads of people come up to me. And that makes me immensely proud that they, they like him and they see what a nice guy he is. Absolutely. And in, in terms of the future, um, I know obviously you, you can't speak for him in terms of his career ambitions, etc. but do you expect to see him as a manager in his own right one day? Uh, that's what he wants. I don't think it makes any bones. One day he's, he's learning the ropes at the moment under Philip Koku at, at Derby. And that's why he left. You know, he, had a, he had a really comfortable job at Sky and I think they loved him and he loved doing it. But... He's had this burning ambition since he was a kid, since he was about five years old. He used to listen to me very, very quickly. And a guy, my best mate, Paul Mortimer, talking about football. He's pretending he was playing with his toys, but he was actually listening to us talking football. He's had this burning desire to, to manage and coach, and he's learning the ropes. Um, he knows that he's got, to, he's got to learn and he's got to, you know, just soak up as much as he can. That's what he wants to do. I hope he, I hope he does, and I try and help him achieve that. But I know that, no, my, my, no matter what he does, he'll be he'll be really successful because he's he's a he's a clever boy, uh, intelligent boy, and and he gets on with people. He knows how to get the best out of people, which is you can be the best coach in the world if you don't have to get on with people, you don't get the best out of them. And so I'm confident that you know he can relate to people and help them get the best out of themselves, which in turn will help him achieve what he wants to achieve. Absolutely, and earlier on I asked you some quick-fire questions about your teammates. I want to now finish by asking you some quick-fire questions about yourself. First mm -hmm. of all, Ian, um, what's your favourite sport outside of football? Favourite sport outside of football is cricket. I used to be a, I used to be a wicketkeeper. I love proper test cricket. I, I could sit down and watch cricket all day long. So, yeah, I, I, I was brought up with the West Indies coming over and 
bowling fast. People like you know Bob Willis who passed away and Ian Both, and that was the era I watched David Gower. I loved all that, and so I thought the the, the cricket was recently. You know the the the, the Ashes was absolutely superb. Who's your favourite sportsman outside of football? Favourite sportsman outside of football? Wow. Outside of football. Um, oh, I, I, would, I would say, is that ever or now or ever? For, ever. Well, I, I love Clive Lloyd. You remember Clive Lloyd, the captain of the West Indies? He had the language, his left the bowl and he was captain, so laid back, but so talented. And he's now Sir, Sir Clive Lloyd. And so when I used to watch cricket, I, yeah, I, I think he was an outstanding and a leader. The reason why I pick him is because if you can imagine as, as a footballer growing up um, watching the game, there, there weren't any black captains. You know, there was no black leaders. You know, now we have you know, people like Vincent Company, still not many, but to have someone who led by example and was a real captain and leader of men and a role model for young black people at that time is really important. So that's why I pick people like him. Who was your first footballing hero growing up? Pele, because um, uh, I watched the, that 1970 World Cup and um, the, everybody was talking about Pele and I didn't really understand. And, and then I just, and I was still, a, I was only young, yeah, six or five or six. I just remember that number 10 shirt was iconic in Brazil. And uh, yeah, Pele was the, yeah, he was the man. Tea or coffee? Coffee, all day long. Beach holiday or city break? Which holiday? Beach holiday or city break? So, what holiday? Did you miss that? Beach holiday or city oh. break? Oh, oh. Um, that's tough. That's tough, actually. Um, city break. Where city is? Break. Where's your favourite place you've been able to visit so far? My favourite place? Uh, um... I was fortunate to go to South Africa recently, and that's a magnificent, magnificent country. Obviously, it has its problems, but you know the, the actual place is, is magnificent. Sierra Leone is absolutely, you know, going back to where my parents came from. Absolutely beautiful place. Um, the beaches are stunning, and uh, yes, yeah, so I've been to some nice places in Africa. You know, and I think if people, you know, took took, took a trip to Africa, they'd be they'd blow their minds at some of the places. Where's on your bucket list to go where you've not been yet? Um, on my bucket list. Um, it's, it's, I'm not, I don't dream of going, I, I just want to be in a happy place. Um, you know, if I have to say, you know, I'll go to, I want to go to, you know, Australia or something. It's not, I'm not, if I didn't go, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be bothered. I, in all honesty, I would, I, I loved living in Torquay. I love the Southwest. I live in Bristol now. I'm very, very fortunate, especially in these circumstances that I'm in, in the Southwest because the beaches down, if you go to Torquay, you'll see some of the best beaches you will ever see uh, in the world. So I'm going to be, and my partner's from North Devon as well. And if you go to North Devon, you go to Croyd, you go to Sun, and you'll see some of the most in, beautiful places you've ever seen. So yeah, if I if I could, go to Australia or New Zealand, yeah, that, that would be great. I wouldn't be bothered because you know what, there's some beautiful places just down the road for me. And so I can pop in the car and drive down for an hour and a half and be there. So, you know, I think sometimes you should appreciate what you've got. Uh, and uh, cause I think it goes over people's heads that just down the road, there's some absolutely beautiful places. And sometimes you don't have to go jump on the plane to, to uh, experience it. Absolutely. And in terms of Bristol, what would you recommend that people do if they were to take a visit to Bristol? If they want to visit Bristol, they would. They should come down and go into the city because it's like a mini London. Loads of independent shops. You can walk along the the marina. Lots of history. Obviously, there's a lot to do with the slave trade. There's lots of well. Ho hopefully, these in independent shops will come back. It's a really nice feel about Bristol and Park Street and the history and the churches. And then what I would do, I'd tell them to uh, take the trip out to Cheddar, to Cheddar Gorges, um, make their way down to past Western Supermare, we always see loads of people on the beach, but I'd go, I tend to go further on away from that, go and find the, the, the uh, less populated be uh, beaches, because I'm by the English Channel, lots of stone, I suppose, beaches, and you can always find isolated coves and places like that. 
And then once they've done that, I'd say jump in the car and get down to Devon and that area. And because uh, they will see some stunning places that are as good as any beaches they've seen in the, in, around the world. Um, but you just got to go and find them. And uh, um, yeah, that's what I'd say. Come down to the southwest and enjoy. Favourite film? Favourite film? It's Shawshank Redemption. Um, this is the top, top film. I've watched it many, many times. And um, yeah, yeah, and the, the, yeah, my favourite film by, by far. Favourite music? Favourite music, Luther Vandross. I brought up on Luther Vandross and saw my sisters with DJs. So you know, you've got Luther Vandross, Earth in the Fire, Stevie Wonder, um, Prince, Michael Jackson, Jackson 5. But if I was to say... Um, one artist it would be Luther Vandross I always sing his songs at karaoke so that's, that was definitely it Brilliant um, Favourite food? Favourite food is my mum's chicken my mum makes uh, jello rice and, and chicken and I know everybody said it's, it's them but it is my mum's my mum's cooking home cooking it, it is the best and uh, yeah and uh, hopefully I can go and get some off her when, when, we, when we finish all this Absolutely Beer or wine? Uh, red wine can't drink beer when I was when I was with the players. I used to, I used to feed the plant. They used to drink plants like it was, but well, I couldn't. So I'd pretend I'd be drinking it and, and <laughs> drop it in the plant next to me. So I'm now a little red wine uh, man. Yeah, I'm not I'm not the best of drinkers. So a little bit often, not that Brilliant. a little bit, not so often. Brilliant. Um, last couple of questions, just to link it back to football. If you could play for any manager who's managing now, who would it be and why? The Pep Pep Guardiola all day long because I think I would learn a lot. Klopp is right up there because I think he's great with people but I think I'd just love to find out how he manages and how he gets that out of players you know so I'd love to play under I think most players would say Pep or or Klopp. And the last one I'm going to put you really on the spot with us you're at your Mm -hmm. peak as a player Liam's at his peak as a player who wins the 50-50 battle? (laughs) Me all day long he's not putting on the spot Uh, me all day long as quicker, stronger, powerful, better. <laughs> Leroy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. No problem, mate. You take care. Speak to you soon. Take care. So we'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a deep sea cave and our shells will all be open. They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song. We'll dive down to the ocean and we'll make our home in a